essentially, I just want to refresh our minds as to what we're doing and what my hope really is for Wednesday nights. Um, there, there was a, there's a, a national park in Texas that we went to several times uh, called Big Bend National Park, and it sits right on the Rio Grande. Uh, I mean, you can look across and see Mexico. And the, the setup of the camp is really interesting. It's the only hill in Texas, uh, really, to go to. <laughs> the rest of it's pretty flat. Um, but uh, Big Bend is set up where when you drive in, you drive into Chisos Basin. So you go up a really high, uh, I guess you, around here you'd probably just call it a, a hill. Uh, for us, it might as well be Mount Everest. Uh, so we, you go up and then you go back down into this little, basically a, a bowl, and that is your base camp. And so you go down into base camp. And you camp there for as long as you want to. And then during the days, or maybe you take a several-day excursion, but you hike up to the rim and you hike around the bowl of the rim. And it's, it's different. They got falcon up there and different things like that. It's really pretty. Um, the rest of it's really not that pretty. But inside there is really pretty. Um, but the, I, my thought about Wednesday night really is providing sort of a base camp for us as we attempt to summit the mountain. So what we're doing right now, effectively, is our base camp. Uh, what we've been going through for the last few weeks is really, uh, in seminary, they would call this systematic theology, okay? Uh, but essentially, it is uh, taking all of the scriptures that we have in front of us, the Word of God that we have in front of us, and compiling it. So figuring out what God has revealed about himself to us and putting them all together so that we can see in a systematic way as we go through who God is and learn more about him. But for us, it's going to be effectively a base camp. So there will be times where we get to things that need a little bit more discussion where we'll go off on an excursus and we'll look at more detail. As an example, uh, the end times is particularly um, a hot topic and uh, needs a lot better treatment than just one Wednesday night. And so when we get to something like the end times, we'll explore that a little bit more in depth, right? And then we'll come back to base camp. So we'll be here for a while, but we'll take off on little different uh, treks, as it were. And uh, we, we've been going through, what I've been using as an outline is Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. So he, prov- he provides for us an outline, and then we, I supplement it with other uh, theologies of different kinds, and hopefully I'm able to distill this down, because our, our goal is not simply just an academic exercise, but at the end of the day, to talk about why this actually matters, why understanding and knowing who God is actually, at the end of the day, really honestly matters. The last couple of weeks, we have explored uh, two, two things that under, the att- under the umbrella of the attributes of God. And we've said the categories that we think about the attributes of God are two. The first is the incommunicable attributes of God. And the second is the communicable attributes of God. The incommunicable attributes are the attributes that God does not share with anyone else. Those attributes are unique to God alone. No one else has those attributes. God alone is eternal. God alone is perfectly holy, all-knowing, all-powerful. God alone is that. But then the other is the communicable attributes, the attributes that he readily shares with us. God is love. 
you and I have the capacity to be loving. God is love, and he has shared that with us. We wouldn't know how to be loving. We wouldn't even know what love was if it wasn't for God revealing to us his own love. Yes? Makes sense? Remember that? Communicable and incommunicable attributes of God. So we started on the incommunicable attributes of God and just seeing what those things are as God has revealed himself to us in Scripture. And the first thing that we talked about, the only thing that we've talked about so far, is the independence of God. God alone is completely independent, meaning he does not need any one of us or any other created thing in order to subsist, in order to exist. He's, tells, he's told, us this, told us this in many, many places throughout Scripture, not least of which is Paul speaking to the uh, people of, of Athens and telling them very plainly that God does not uh, need a temple made by man as, as though he needed anything from us. Uh, he doesn't live in a temple made by hands. So um, we talked about last time we were together, the application for that is that there are times where we don't get that exactly right in some of our hymnody or some of our music that's being produced uh, today. As an example was a song with the line, you didn't want heaven without us. And there's certainly a way you could understand that where you could say, okay, I can understand maybe in some regards that he maybe stated in the positive, he wanted heaven with us. Maybe we could say it that way. But just the statement in and of itself just kind of reeks of me-centered uh, theology. Um, another one that uh, came to mind afterwards, I was talking with, with Blake, and I couldn't remember the words. I remember the song, but I couldn't remember the words right off the top of my head, so I didn't mention it. But uh, like a rose trampled on the ground, you took the fall and thought of me above all. And, uh, and, and that just doesn't, that, that reeks of more me-centered uh, mentality when, of course, God is God-centered. To be anything less would be idolatry. So we talked about that a, a few weeks ago. Um, now I want to explore just a few more of the incommunicable attributes of God. And we're going to start off like we normally do with reading some scripture. So I'm going to need some volunteers to read a, a bevy of scripture here. Uh, is that right? Bevy? I think that's right. Uh, so who wants to take Psalm 102, 25 to 27? All right, Vicki Thomason. Psalm 33:11. All right, all right. Uh, let's let's, get, let's do you, Olivia. And then why don't, why don't you go ahead and take uh, Malachi 3:6? And then how about James 1:17? All right, Jeff. There. Um, Isaiah 46:9 to 11. All right, Lori. Um, Numbers 23:19. Who will take that? All right, back here in the back. Uh, Terry Mobs. And uh, 1 Samuel 15, 29. Do you want to take that, Stephen? All right. 1 Samuel 15, 29. All right. When you have Psalm 102, 25 to 27, go ahead and read that out. All right. Who's next? Psalm 33, 11. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. All right. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. Uh, Malachi 3, 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not changed. 
James 1.17. Isaiah 46, 9 to 11. Remember the former sayings, those of long ago. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. From the east I summon a bird of prey. From far off land a man to fulfill my purpose. What I have said that I will bring about. What I have planned that will I do. Numbers 23:19 God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind Has he said and will he not do it or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it 1 Samuel 15:29 All right. Now, you hear in there probably a lot of different things. Is there one thing that you're hearing that's sort of common amongst all the verses of Scripture that we read that would be a characteristic of God? He's eternal. Okay. There, there is some eternality there. He's got bigness. Yeah. We'll get to that in a He's unchanging. I think this is the, the, there's one thread in there. Certainly there's probably both of those are communicated, which is why we're going to talk about both of them tonight. But, um, but he is unchanging. We call that, the big fancy word for that is immutable. God is immutable or his unchangeability. His, uh, his immutability or his unchangeable, his unchangeability. Um, God is immutable. What do we mean when we say God does not change. Now, there are certainly some things for, for, for many of you probably in this room who are Bible scholars are probably thinking of some verses that we'll talk about in just a minute where we're, we're, we're actually seeing in the text there's some change that's happening. And so we say, well, wait a minute, what about, what about these? But what do we exactly mean when we say God is immutable? He does not change. Well, here's the first part of the definition. Um, this is from Louis Burkhoff. This says, God is unchanging in his being, his perfections, his purposes, and his promises. And I think we've seen those in each of the verses that, we have, that we've read already. God is immutable. He is unchanging. Now... Um, there are, there are a, a litany of complexities in Scripture. Scripture is infinitely complex. So complex that we could study Scripture all day, every day, and we would never exhaust the depths of it. It's unique in that capacity. that We could study it and never exhaust the depths of it. Sometimes the study of Scripture will frustrate some. Because the Christian doesn't take a scientific approach when we study Scripture. We begin with a ton of presuppositions. Right? We begin with a list of presuppositions that we never flinch on, that are always true. So for one would be the inerrancy and infallibility 
of Scripture. The church has believed that since there was a church. (laughs) That God is inerrant, himself is inerrant and infallible, and therefore the word that he has spoken to is inerrant and infallible. And what we believe we have sitting in front of us is the inerrant, infallible word of God. So what happens then when I uncover texts that seem to be apparent contradictions? Well, what I have sitting in front of me is a book that is inerrant and infallible. We, we said a few weeks ago when we uncovered that, that it, in its original manuscripts, it's inerrant and infallible. I have a book that is inerrant and infallible. Am I inerrant and infallible? Hey, watch it now. Uh, (laughs) I think you all know I am not inerrant or infallible. And you, I'll just go ahead and point it out, are not inerrant or infallible. And so we as as a Christian, as we're approaching Scripture, when we see things in the text that seem to be apparent contradictions, what I trust is that the contradiction lies in my own mind and not in the Word of God. And the truth be told, there are some complex thoughts and ideas in Scripture that need to be held in tension with one another, that both are true. And what happens, at least in history, has been that people have sought to resolve one of those tension points, and they fell into the ditch of heresy. And then another group comes along and they try to correct that guy's mistake and they correct so far the other way, they fall in the other ditch of heresy, right? Our job is to keep them in tension and stay on the road. We believe and we saw in scripture that God is immutable, that he's unchangeable. He said that about himself. I don't change. Therefore, you aren't consumed, O children of Jacob, right? It's, it's a foundational principle for the children of Jacob. Now, uh, with, that being, with that in mind, I want us to read a few texts that come out in Scripture, and let's talk about them, all right? They're difficult, no doubt, but let's go ahead and, and read those. Who wants to take Exodus 32, 9 through 14? All right, Susan, uh, will you take Isaiah 38, uh, 1 through 6? Yes. Yeah, Hannah? Yes. Sorry, I'm, I'm trying to go through the Rolodex real quick, but Hannah. Uh, Jonah 3, 4, and 10. Yes, Becky. Genesis 6, 6. All right. Uh, 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 yes. Jen? <laughs> Sorry. I, I know it. Just trust me. I do, I do know it. 1 Samuel 15, 10 to 11. All right, Richard. Why don't you go ahead and take it, Richard? All right. When you have Exodus 32, 9 to 14, go ahead and read those. Read that.
right? Let's get the next one. I told you they're difficult. Isaiah 38, 1 through 6. Uh, Jonah 3, 4, and then 10. On the first day, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. All right. Genesis 6, 6. This, the, the, starting in Genesis and then in 1 Samuel going to be just a slightly different tone to the text of scripture that we're going to read, but it's similar, at least in, in its ballpark. So Genesis 6, 6. The Lord was grieved that he made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. All right, 1 Samuel 15, 10 to 11. The word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, he cried to the Lord all night. All right. Now, just so let's think about this for just a second. What are we seeing in these texts? What, what is this that we're reading? Yeah, right? Like, there's some that it says, oh, he changed. Now, why is that difficult for what we've, we just read previously? <laughs> he said he didn't, right? So we, we said, let me back up just a, just a hair. We said God is unchanging in his being, perfections, purposes, right? Which some of those that we read seem to be that he has purposed to do this and he didn't do it because whatever, he, did, he didn't. Um, what do we do with that? Remember what I what previously said. The option for us is not the Bible is errant, right? There's a, a, two proverbs that sit back to back. The first one says, uh, answer a fool according to, its, to his folly. And the next one says, David Maxwell, don't answer a fool according to his folly. And the question is, well, which do I do? Do I answer a fool according to his folly? Do I not answer a fool according to his folly? Of course, the answer is Yes. <laughs> right? What do we do with these passages of Scripture? How do, we, how do we understand this? I do not change, therefore you aren't consumed. But God changed. Anybody? Yeah, go ahead, Jen.
Okay. Okay. Um, I, I, I think so. He did. I mean, in the, in the Hezekiah and the prayer and the, and Moses effectively was a prayer. Uh, um, and what, what Jonah was a, a repent, there was repentance on the part of the Ninevites. So what does that tell us? Okay. Okay, so in his character, I think kind of sort of what Jen was getting at, if we could put them together, there's a, a merciful characteristic that is coming to the fore, uh, overtaking, if you will, maybe, maybe that's a bad word to say, but uh, his, his judgment in that particular scene. Any other ideas, any other thoughts, like how this is? And again, and again to recognize what she said, too, this is really complex, right? I mean... There, there is, I don't know that we ever get to a, well, that settles everything about it. There's now no more uh, questions and complexities that we have to wrestle with, but they're there. Uh, yes, Timothy. One thing we, we seem to gravitate toward boxes and cutting all those sure. things in. And I don't know if we can put God in one of Right. Hmm. Okay. And then I searched for a man to fill the gap. Okay. So that's, you know, that when we come to like options of how, how do we deal with this, there's certainly a number of people that come to those, those conclusions, um, which we're going to talk about in just a second. And in those cases, uh, several times Sure. Okay. 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 Yeah. Um, so, and I don't, I don't know that this is necessarily going to be just satisfactory for everyone, um, but, uh, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it the old college try, all right? Um, we would, I would think we would have to assume that when God purposes to do something, he's going to bring it about, right? He, he, he makes that claim several times in, in Scripture, but I think the underlying assumption, particularly in the Exodus, Isaiah, and Jonah passages, which, I, as I said, were a little bit different than the other two, um, there, there would have to be the implication there if nothing changes. I think this is evident in the Jonah passage, right? Especially. Uh, God is sending Jonah into the land of Nineveh, and he's te- he tells him first, just... Uh, Tell them uh, something that I, I will tell you when you get there. Essentially, go and, and I'll tell you what to say. And when Jonah gets there after going through his whole ordeal, he, he says, 40 days and Nineveh is going to be overthrown. 
It wouldn't, though, really make a whole lot of sense if there wasn't an opportunity for repentance on the part of the, the, part of the Ninevites. First of all, why send the prophets? Second, why not just do it right now? Like, as soon as I walk out of this city, it's gonna, you're going to be ash, you know, in just a, a, a minute. Uh, but it seems to be apparent, even though it's not stated in the text anywhere, if absolutely nothing changes, 40 days and Nineveh is going to be overthrown. And there's a possibility, I think, in reconciling those, the list of passages we already read with the passages we just read, that would, would seem to imply that if nothing changes, then this is going to take place. In uh, both Moses and Hezekiah, both of them uh, beseech the Lord in, in prayer, of repentance and, and things of that nature. And it seems as though the Lord recognizes that prayer. As David pointed out, perhaps it is to generate the response of prayer from, on the part of his people. Um, so there's, there's certainly a lot of other complex things that are going on in, in all of those passages, but I think perhaps that could be a way of reconciling those two, those two sets of verses. Does that make sense as far as that goes? Yes? Yeah. Yeah, with the implication, if nothing changes, this is going to take place. Where the rep- prayer of repentance, or in Jonah's case, the repentance from the part of the, the people in Nineveh, uh, changes the, how God responds to that particular um, community. Yes? Yeah. And God said, yeah. Right? But there wasn't. <laughs> and so, uh, so he didn't. You know, um, so it, it would seem to imply that if, if, if absolutely nothing changes, then, and, and, and maybe that's not how God reacts all the time, but I, I think that would be the case. In, Genesis, in the Genesis account, in the first Samuel account, it would seem that what God is expressing is a, a current displeasure with the sin that is going on right at that moment. I don't think the text is strong enough or that we have enough evidence to suggest that if God could go back and do it all over again, that he would choose something different. And there's a reason why this is a, thinking this way is problematic. If God could go back and do it all over again and would choose different, the question we would have to ask, is he learning some new information that he didn't previously know? I think that's really dangerous if we land in that category, right? So I think maybe immutability should probably be defined like this. God is unchanging in his being, perfections, purposes, and promises, yet God does act and feel emotions, and he acts and feels differently in response to different situations, right? So there are situations in which he responds to uniquely, And the situation may change in which it would require a different response from God. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) See first Samuel. (laughs) 
Yeah. The, that term in Hebrew is the definitions are really wide. Um, and so it's really hard to grab onto one um, lexical definition and just say that, that that's it. Um, we try to get the best definition we possibly can, but it, it's something to that effect. Yeah. Right. They mean something That's right. Yeah. That's exactly right. Right. Um, now, here's the reason. I want to bring this to the, to the forefront, to your attention. Here, here's one reason why this is particularly troubling in, and this has always been, uh, you know, I guess hotly debated, if you, if you will, but in particular of late, there is something called open theism. Anybody ever heard of open theism? Anybody ever heard of that? Of course, Blake, you have. I know that. <laughs> Just, I'm teasing you. Uh, open theism. Anybody ever heard of that? Open theism. Um, it, 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 sometimes it's hard to pin down a definition. So what I did was I actually just grabbed a quote from an open theist, and it'll give you a sense of the flavor of open theism. Clark Pinnock is an, a, a notable open theist. Um, that's not me recommending him, by the way. <laughs> I just wanted you to know his name. Um, an anti-recommendation, if you will. Uh, Clark Pinnock says this. Uh, decisions, and he, he means human decisions, not yet made do not exist anywhere to be known even by God. God can predict a great deal of what we will choose to do, but not all of it, because some of it remains hidden in the mystery of human freedom. Just think about that for just a minute. Open theism basically says that God has chosen to not know anything about the future. The future is completely and totally open. As a man decides, the future will be Changed. God will learn of that change at the same time the human does. How popular is this? Very. Um, oh, wait, just wait. Oh, it contradicts a lot of things. Tell me what you are meaning by that, by that verse. What you are saying that that means. Oh, well, even what possibilities would, would have liked. Yeah. Sure. So, um, yes. Now, when it comes to open theism, there are a lot of questions we should really be asking. Um, and these are just some of them. Uh, what assurance can we really have of salvation? What assurance can you possibly actually have of salvation? If God is learning of all these things, how, how can he possibly assure you of anything? If God could change for the better, is he worth serving now? He's not the best. Is he worth serving now? Is he worthy of worship now? If God could change for the worse, 
Will he be worth serving in the future? There's a chance in open theism God could learn of some new detail and change for the worse. And where would we be then? If his promises can change, let's say, is Jesus really coming back? How can God guarantee anything in the future if he doesn't know it? So who does he reference? What does he reference? As with all scholarship, liberal scholarship in particular, there will take Bible verses and give you the deep meaning of those Bible verses. And a lot of where they hang their hat, even in their own verse list in their books, will be those, some of those verses we just read, and many like them. And they'll say, this is the reality of, the, of what's really going on. Jesus seems to indicate, when it, when it, in regards to his coming back, I don't know. It seems that Jesus has given that knowledge to the Father and has chosen not to take it. But it seems in the Old Testament and the verses we read, well, maybe the Father doesn't know at all either, and he's learning of these things as, we, as he goes. Um, there's also another part of this that's a, kind of a different thing called process theology, which says that God is going through the processes and he is learning new things all the time. And he is getting better and better every day because he is learning new things as he goes. And believe it or not, uh, Evangelical Theological Society, which is a, a, a tremendous organization that does a lot of great biblical scholarship, has not declared, as of yet anyway, open theism to be a heresy. And they still allow Clark Pinnock to read his uh, articles at Evangelical Theological Society. So, um, at least last I know, maybe somebody knows some updated information. What's that? Where's God getting this new information? Yeah, from you and me, as we make choices. In process theology, as you and me learn things, you and I learn things, we, we learn something about cancer. God is learning something about cancer. Uh, and, and he may have learned some things from the Babylonians two, you know, 3,000 years ago, maybe. I don't know. But he, he's, he's learning new things all the time. And you know, then he, he kind of, as he gathers this information, he's getting a lot smarter, um, as it were. Just getting better and better. That's right. He is the ultimately uh, ultimate evolving uh, creature, right? Do what? Right. Um, so uh, here, this is one of the pitfalls that we can steer into, and we have to say, no, 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 no. Now, there's another ditch on the other side that says, hey, God has all. We're just robots, right? Well, you can't fall in that ditch either. That's clearly not true in Scripture. But um, here would be my response through Jesus to open theism. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's I and the Father are one. I don't see how Jesus can make that promise or even come close to stating that if open theism is true. 
Questions about that? Comments? Blake. Oh yeah. Yeah. Was very solid theologically. Mm-hmm. And this was this came out of nowhere. And so yeah. I just think if someone like this oh, yeah. who was a profoundly yeah. solid biblical scholar could go off the off the off the yeah. edge. Yeah. That that puts trepidation in my own heart. Sure, yeah. The, I mean even let's go back to the children of, of Israel exiting Egypt out of the out of slavery. They watched a cloud come behind them and cover them up and, and they watched the sea part in front of them and drown Pharaoh's army as they walked across on dry land and not 40 days after they crossed, they're making golden calves on the mountain. It doesn't matter what experiences we have and what knowledge we have, we're capable of steering into the ditch. Jeff? Mm. I don't know if I like those categories, a fine line or a gray line. Uh, um, I think there are clearly marked boundaries, and I think where we know those boundaries is, what helps us know those boundaries is 2,000 years of church history. Um, There is uh, really a a very, and it's honestly quite short list of things that all Christians have believed for the last 2,000 years. And I think where we see people steering into the ditch, it honestly begins with a violation of one of those few things. Um, the inerrancy and fallibility of Scripture is one of those things that the church has believed um, everywhere, always, and by all, as it's been said. Um, the, the deity of Christ... Uh, the triune Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Um, the Jesus, Jesus and the Holy Spirit being co-eternal and co-existent and co-equal to God the Father. Um, that's certainly part of it. Fallen man, that's another part. So there, there's, there's a handful of things that if you trace Clark Pinnock all the way back to the very beginning, there was... Probably, my guess, I don't know for sure, but probably the inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture fell by the wayside. And once that fell by the wayside, there he went, right off into the ditch. And um, so we'll, we'll be covering a lot of those. Part of what I want to do in this kind of summiting the mountain kind of idea um, is, is identifying or helping us to identify as we see in Scripture those things that are of first order importance for us. The difference between a Christian and a non-Christian, those things that are of first order importance. And then second, helping us see what actually makes us Baptists. Why, why is there a Baptist church and then down the road there's a Methodist church and then another down the road there's a Presbyterian church? And Why are there differences there, but we're all going to be in heaven together one day, right? Why, why is that the case? 
um, and helping us to identify those second order importance. And then the third order importance, things that are we need to talk about and maybe even debate and discuss, but at the end of the day, they don't separate us in terms of different churches, and they don't, at the end of the day, determine whether one person is a Christian or not. Um, so that's part of what we, we want to uncover over time here, but yeah. Um, People leave. Yeah. Well, I, I want to I look at, just, just remind us of a couple things as we, we close tonight, just to kind of um, apply this, and we'll talk about the next uh, part next time. But I want to go back to what we read in Malachi 3.6 um, about God's unchanging nature. For I, the Lord... Do not change. Therefore, O children of Jacob, you are not consumed. There are Christians, and maybe some even in this room, that constantly struggle with their salvation, doubting whether or not God loves them. And most commonly, this happens as they begin to struggle with sin. Who doesn't struggle with sin? But for some, sin may be such struggle, and sin may be winning a lot of battles, that we're tempted to believe, now I've done it. It's at this point, finally, that God is fed up. I think, beyond all things, God's unchanging nature should tell us that if he saved us, he won't let us go. In fact, we see it time and time again in the Old Testament, the reminder that he gives to the children of Israel is I bore you. I carried you. I was the one that was faithful in spite of your faithlessness. I know for me, there were plenty of years where I wrestled with that over and over and over again. How is it that God can possibly love me? Surely at this point, I have done it. But it says something about our view of God, I think, when we wrestle with those kinds of thoughts. Has God learned something new about you that he didn't know when he saved you? I don't think that's true. I look at the guarantee of Jesus where he says, my sheep hear my voice. I talk, they follow. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who is greatest of all, 
none can snatch them out of his hand. I think it should encourage us. I think it should keep us from veering into the ditch. This is the God that's been revealed to us. A God who knows and acts. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful. Gratitude doesn't even begin to express how we feel in our service to you. Knowing that you are unchanging. That you are unrelenting. That you persist in faithfulness in spite of my faithlessness. Lord, I pray that we would be convinced of your love for us. That when we doubt it, we would look to the cross. And there we would see the bloodied, crucified Son of God who came to bear our sins that we might be forgiven. And if we are in the midst of great sin, I pray that that picture of your love for us would bring us back to repentance. And bring us into worship of an almighty God who is all-powerful and all-knowing. And best of all, who loves us. In Jesus' name, amen.